We welcome you to the media ministry of Denton Bible Church. All right. Well, as you could probably tell from the very subtle video, we are starting an 11-week series on the Sermon of the Mount. And the theme that we are looking at is life in the kingdom. What does it mean to be a citizen of the kingdom? Um, What does it mean to live life in the kingdom? What does it mean to live life as Christians in a world that isn't part of the kingdom, a world that is actually against the kingdom, right? So today uh, we're looking at kind of an introduction and a good way to start is a definition of the kingdom. What was it that the Jews were expecting and how did Jesus in his ministry and in the Sermon of the Mount upend those expectations? Um, we see in his life, even though the Jews had been uh, years expecting this kingdom, the Messiah, this, this new covenant, that as soon as Jesus comes on the scene, they rebel against him, right? You see the Jewish leaders are constantly in opposition. Why? What made Jesus's message so strange to the Jewish leaders? Um, what made his message and his life uh, create such opposition among people that should be welcoming him? So um, today we're going to look a little bit at that. And to start, we're going to look at how that expectation was even among the followers of Jesus. Guys that had grown up in the Jewish culture, guys that had been good, godly people, even followers of Jesus— didn't have a full understanding of what the kingdom was, who the expected one was, who the Messiah is. And so we're going to start off tonight looking at Matthew 11 and the frustration of unmet expectations in the ministry of John the Baptist. So we'll be jumping around a lot in this kind of intro session, so I apologize in advance. We're going to be covering a lot of ground, uh, but we're going to start here in Matthew 11 and then cover the first four chapters leading up to the Sermon on the Mount. So, Matthew 11, verses 2 and 3. Now, when John, John the Baptist, was imprisoned and heard the works of Christ, he sent work by his, word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the expected one? Or shall we look for someone else? Okay. Um, the expected one. Are you the Messiah? Is the kingdom come? Is this what we were supposed to be hoping in? And we can't blame John too much. What's his situation? He's in prison. Um, And if you look forward in the text, he's going to be executed, right? He's going to be killed for his faith. And so he is dejected. He is sad. This expectation he had of a great, powerful Messiah that would end evil and bring about this new kingdom. Instead, he has Jesus' ministry, and he's confused, What's going on here? Are you the expected one? Or should we expect someone else? Um, And I love Jesus' response, okay? In good Jesus' uh, kind of fashion, he doesn't give a straight answer. Instead, what I think he does is far more brilliant. Jesus answered him, verse 4, Matthew 11, and said to him, Go and report to John all you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. So rather than giving him a direct answer, what does he do? He points to prophecy. He points to his ministry. He points to the Old Testament. You should already know this. 
What you hoped for is here. The kingdom has come. And he's going to point to texts in the Old Testament that prove that. Specifically Isaiah 29 and Isaiah 61. Yes, the expected one has come. Yes, the kingdom has been inaugurated. Yes, this is what you had hoped for, but just not what you expected. Okay, how often does God do that? Right? We have these expectations of what he's going to do and how he's going to do it. We want him to work according to how we want him to work. But then God comes up with what we need, not what we expect. And so this long hoped for thing is here and that's what the Sermon on the Mount is going to talk about. How do you live in this kingdom now that it's here? Okay. So that's his response to John the Baptist. And it brings up two big questions, which we'll spend the majority of tonight on before we kind of kick off next week with the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount. And those two questions are this. Number one, what was... What were the expectations of the Jewish people for the Messiah? What was it that was that unmet expectation that led them, in John's case, to ask, and the Jewish leader's case, to oppose him? What were they expecting? How did they get it wrong? Okay, What did they want? What were they looking for? Where did that come from? And then number two, how did Jesus correct this misunderstanding of the kingdom? How does he correct their expectations? And in some case, upend them, challenge them, overthrow their expectations. Okay? What you think you need is not what you need. What you want is not what's best. Here's what the kingdom is. Here's what I'm coming to do. Uh, that sort of thing. So that's what we're going to basically divide the sermon into. Number one, looking at Jewish expectations, uh, which will be a nice short sermon over about this much of the Bible. Okay, because we got to cover the Old Testament and what they were looking for. I promise we won't be here for six weeks. Uh, I'll just hit some highlights. And then we'll look at Matthew 1 through 4 to how Matthew and Jesus respond. Jesus is the completion of the expectations. Jesus is the expected one. This is the kingdom that you need, not the one you want. Um, a paradigm to keep in mind. Okay, so as we go through this, I want you to keep this little phrase in mind. It's a theological phrase uh, that was uh, come up with in the early 20th century called the already not yet. So when we reference the kingdom, there's this idea of already not yet. That's why John the Baptist and Jesus can preach the kingdom is at hand, but there's still more to come. If you read ahead, skip on to the back of the Bible, you see Revelation, you see the completion. Now Christ is reigning on earth. He's here. There's a land attached to it. Um, evil has been destroyed. But that's in the future. That's the not yet. But then there's the already part, okay? And the problem the Jews had is they didn't see the difference. They didn't see that the Messiah had to come twice. First, for our spiritual needs, Right? Defeat of sin, salvation, uh, to bring um, change to his people. And then secondly, at the end, to punish evil and bring about a new heaven and a new earth. They didn't realize that. And then number two, they focused on the earthly part. They didn't want someone to fix them. They want someone to fix everyone else. 
right? They wanted a Messiah that would come in, guns a-blazing, destroy all the enemies, create this great kingdom. And we see that over and over again in the Gospels. Uh, here we see John the Baptist, like, is this it? And you see later on, like, the disciples fighting over who had special position and power, right? It's the same mentality. And we kind of fall into that too, right? God fixed this. But that's not always what's best, all right? So let's get started. Let's look at first the Old Testament and that expectation. What are they hoping for in the kingdom? And then we'll walk through Matthew 1 through 4 quickly to look at how Christ and Matthew respond to that and show, hey, this is it, okay? <clears throat> All right, first, at the very beginning, Genesis 3.15, you have the promise, the proto-evangelium, um, Genesis 3.15, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, and he will bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the hill. So just quick reminder, you have creation, you have uh, man and woman created, there's the fall. Even in the midst of the curse, God gives them a promise that there is a future, all right, that there will be a time when the seed of woman crushes the head of the servant, defeats Satan, all right? And they are looking forward to that. Notice here, it's the spiritual situation that he's pointing to first. So before we promise land, before we promise a king, before we promise any of those other things, there's good news. Sin will be defeated. Satan will be crushed. All right? So that's what they should be thinking about first. But that's not where they go. Instead, they follow more into the later promises. Um, Abraham's seed, Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Yet again, sorry we're jumping around a lot. Hopefully the text will be on the screen so you can follow along without having to skip around too much. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you. And your name will be great and you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and curse the ones, and the ones who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now here's another misunderstanding, okay? All the people of the earth will be blessed. The Jewish leaders, who did they want the blessing for? Themselves, the Jewish people, right? Let's kill everyone else, okay? Stop them. But here we have in the original covenant to Abraham an expectation that there will be the inclusion of the Gentiles, a hope for the world, not just for the Jewish people, okay? Um, there's also the promise of land. There's also the promise he'll be a great nation. Um, and so you see those as well. Israel will inherit the promised land, um, and the enemies of God's people will be cursed. So there will be a day where evil will be completely destroyed, right? The final judgment. But that's in the not yet. We're still in the already. And yet again, this is a misunderstanding that the Jewish people had. They liked the idea of destroying everybody, but they want it now, all right? Um, then if you trace the rest of the story, you have Abraham, you have the patriarchs, you have the um, exile into Egypt, then coming out of Egypt, Ten Commandments, all that fun stuff. And then you get back into the land with the book of Judges, where the people start calling for a king. Yet again, we want that earthly part, right? 
Uh, and if you read in Samuel when they call for a king, why do they want it? Well, it's not because we think it's a good idea, like God told us. It's because other nations have it, and we want one. Y'all remember that? Uh, it's a completely um, material, earthly reason. But God gives them a king, and he gives the king who follows after God's heart, David, a special promise. So let's jump to 2 Samuel 7. 2 Samuel 7, 9 through 16. I have been with you wherever you've gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make you a great name, like the names of great men who are on earth. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they will live in their own place and not be disturbed again. There will be a time when there's peace, permanent peace, right? In the future. There will be a time when Israel has returned to the land. There will be a time where there is an establishment of a long-term kingdom, uh, but that's in the not yet. And then skipping on down, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. All right, there's the promise of a temple, which yet again is another expectation, part of this kingdom idea. And Jesus is going to upend their expectation of the temple. Because what does he say the temple is? It's his body. It's the church, right? There will be a time where the temple is here, right? But it's not what they wanted. They wanted the material thing, right? The big building. Um, but there you go. Um, I will raise up a descendant after you who will establish his kingdom. He will be build a house for me. And his throne, he will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, if you're reading this, you know that there's a problem here. Because what happens to the line of David eventually? What happens to the kings of Judah and Israel? They fall, right? They go into exile. Okay, so this promise isn't completed with Solomon. It's not completed with any of those other descendants of David. Instead, there's a descendant coming later on who will establish a permanent kingdom. Who is that? Dot, dot, dot. Okay, and you guys know, but... That's the thing. And then skipping on down to verse 16, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever and your throne shall be established forever. The kings fail, but there's a son of David in the line that will bring a permanent kingdom. It's not the one they expect. It's not a worldly kingdom, okay? There will be one in Revelation, but here in the beginning, it's different. There's his goal, his mission is different. Throughout, moving on into the exile, all of the prophets are looking for the same thing. They're looking for a day when God's saving promises would be fulfilled, his kingdom would come. There would be a new covenant between God and his people, a new exodus from Babylon where the people will be brought back, the spirit would be poured out, and Israel will keep God's law. Now, for those that are good Old Testament scholars, how well do the Jewish people do on keeping God's law? Not. I see a lot of shaking your heads. They don't, okay? It's because they don't have the Holy Spirit. They're not new creations. They fail over and over again. But there's a time when the people of God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, can follow after God. Be already. 
And so we're looking forward to those things. Let me just go through a couple. I won't do all of them because for the sake of time, we can't go through the entire Old Testament, but we'll do a couple. Uh, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 33. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And not like the covenant which I made with the fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it. I will be their God and they will be my people. Did y'all notice that? Israel fails over and over again. But God promises a covenant, not based on your ability, okay? But notice he says, I will make it. I will do it. I will create this new covenant where you will be my people and you will, I will be your God and I will put the law onto their heart. They will follow after me. And so that's the Jewish expectation. When will this come? This true people of Israel looking forward to the day that everyone follows the law. Then you have Ezekiel 11, 17 through 20. Therefore say, thus says the Lord, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries among which you've been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. When they come there, they will remove all detestable things and all its abominations from it, and I will give them one heart and put a new spirit within them. And I will take the heart of stone out of their flesh and give them a I take the heart of stone out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh, that they may walk in my statutes, keep my ordinance, and they will be my people, and I should be their God. See the repetition here? There will be a time when the Messiah comes where his people will be a new creation and have a new heart, so they can follow after God. And already. Not yet. There'll be a time when evil is destroyed. There'll be a final judgment. Peace will be brought in a new heaven and a new earth. We expect both. And so Jesus will come and teach. Some of this has been fulfilled. The already. The kingdom is here. All right. The kingdom is at hand. Then you have Joel 2, 28 and 29. It will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind and your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. The pouring out of the spirit. In the Old Testament, no one experienced that. No one had the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. They might be empowered for an act of ministry or a particular period of time, but the idea of having the spirit poured out on everyone, all of God's people, that hasn't happened. When does that happen? Pentecost, right? After Christ's ministry, after his death and resurrection, after he puts a new heart, right? The new creation, those kind of things. So we're looking forward to that um, period. So you tie those scriptures together with the hope of an anointed figure, a messiah, a prince, a branch of David, the son of God, the son of man, all these titles connected to this hope. And that leads us up to the fulfillment of the Jewish expectation. I'll give you a summary because I know a few of y'all have been writing really fast. So this is a short uh, one-slide explanation of what they're looking forward to. Number one, the Lord will reign over all the earth and the son of David will serve as king. The Lord will reign over all the earth 
and the son of David will serve as king. Uh, the exile will be over and the new covenant fulfilled. The new covenant will be initiated, will be inaugurated, okay? God's people will keep his law. There'll be a new creation. And then finally, the Holy Spirit will be poured out and the promise to Abraham that all nations will be blessed will become a reality, okay? So that is the expectation, but the problem is the Jewish people focus on the earthly aspects. They focus on the kingdom part. They focus on the king, the son of David. They focus on the destruction of enemies. They don't realize that their biggest need isn't that. What is it? Our hearts, the power of sin, we are trapped Right? We need someone to crush the head of the serpent. That's the need. And that's what leads us into Matthew. And what I think you'll see in the first few chapters of Matthew as we lead up to the Sermon on the Mount, that he's trying to hit them over the head with this. You should be expecting this. You should know this. The kingdom is at hand. Pay attention. He's the expected one. And so he's going to go over the top to make sure you understand that. And then that leads us right into the Sermon on the Mount. So let's give kind of a quick outline of Matthew leading up to the Sermon on the Mount. And then we'll kind of conclude with some final thoughts and set up next week. So he starts out with the lineage of the king. Now this is my outline. There's nothing special about it. So, you know, don't, don't think you're getting like some super amazing thing. Just trying to focus on the main themes here. Matthew begins with the king. You wanted someone in the line of David? Here he is. And in fact, in verse one, the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. We only get a couple words into it and he's already given away his hand. Right? You wanted the, the expected one. You wanted the kingdom come. You wanted that. He's here. And then he traces the line. Uh, well, just finishing verse one. The genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David and the son of Abraham. That's interesting. Why that order? Who chronologically comes first, David or Abraham? Abraham. So why does he mention David first? What's Matthew's goal? The king is here. The expected one is here. He is from the line of David. Now he will trace through both so that we get the completion of Abraham's promise and David's promise, but he wants you to know that the king is here. He then ends in uh, verse 16, at the end of this chronology. Just in case you missed it, in verse 16, Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who was called the Messiah. Okay, if he repeats something, it's probably important, all right? So in case you missed it in verse 1, we say it again at the end to make sure everyone knows he is here. The Jewish people have been waiting generations for the chosen one, the expected one, the true king. He is here, Okay. Then we move on to the birth of Christ. So now that we've established that he is in the line of David, you have the birth of Christ in Matthew 1, 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ, which is just the Greek word for Messiah. So yet again, hitting you over the head, okay, in case you've missed it. Um, 
when his mother had been betrothed, etc. So forth. Uh, then you have Joseph um, finds out about the pregnancy. He's going to get rid of Mary and you know, uh, do it quietly. And then an angel appears to him saying, Joseph, son of David, verse 20, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Notice the title she gives Joseph. Joseph, son of David. Why does the angel take the opportunity to point that out? He's the king, all right? He is of the line of David, okay? So yet again, just a subtle way that Matthew's gonna do this over and over again. Um, Take Mary as your wife. Um, She will bear a son, verse 21, and you will call his name Jesus for, catch this, because if you're Jewish, this should challenge upend your expectation for the kingdom. Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. The Messiah is here. Notice Messiah, 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 Messiah. The son of David is here. Son of David, son of David, son of David. And what's he here for? It's not a earthly kingdom that's coming. It's for your saving from your sins. His role here is bigger than you would imagine. He knows what you need. It's a new heart, right? Replace your heart of stone with a heart of flesh. You need a new spirit. You need the Holy Spirit, all right? And so this is why he is here. And so even in chapter one, the expected kingdom that the Jews have been waiting for has been upended. So I called this sermon the expected unexpected kingdom because what Jesus does is like, this is what you should have been expecting, okay? This is what you needed. This is what the kingdom is. It is not simply a physical location. Um, So, He will save them from their sins. Yet again, and you'll see this over and over again in Matthew, a good kind of experiment or fun thing to do one day is just go through and highlight how often Matthew said, and this happened to fulfill prophecy. He's doing that over and over again. Why? All right. You were expecting him. He's here. Here's how he fulfills this. This is how he fulfills this. Over and over again, there's this repetition. He fulfilled prophecy. So Matthew 1, 23, the virgin will be child, bear his son. His name shall be Emmanuel, God with us. Fulfillment of prophecy from Isaiah. uh, And even points out that it's in Isaiah. Okay, everybody with me so far? The kingdom is at hand. The king is here. Okay. He is here for a very specific reason. That's saving you from your sins. Um, Okay, next part, Matthew 2, 1 through 12, worship of the king by the nations here. Remember again, the prophecy of the nations being blessed and the first people to recognize the coming of the Messiah isn't Jewish people, it's the Magi, right? The men from the east who hear that the king of the Jews is here. And I love this kind of illustration because Matthew constantly contrast the king of the Jews, Herod, with the real king of the Jews. You want a man who is politically powerful? That's Herod. But does anybody really want to follow Herod? He kills babies, all right? He's not someone to follow. Then you have the real king of the Jews, the line of David, Jesus, who doesn't come to kill, but he comes to die for you. There's this contrast between those two here. And yet again, you'll see this repetition over and over again of fulfillment of prophecy. Um, Matthew 2, 4, Herod asked where the Messiah is born. And notice the chief priests and scribes know the answer. 
They're expecting it. How can they miss it? And so Matthew points out this irony that the people who know he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem reject him. The chief scribes say, quoting Micah, point out that he will be from Bethlehem. So you have the whole story. The Magi find him. They worship him. Then they leave by different routes so that Herod won't see him. Herod's not happy with that. So you get the opposition to the king. All right, so you have the king of the Jews, Herod, then killing all the babies as he wants to kill the true king of the Jews, which is Jesus. And so Joseph is warned by a dream to flee to Egypt. And catch this again, in case you haven't seen it before, there's a fulfillment of prophecy. Matthew 2.15, out of Egypt I call my son. So Matthew's pointing to um, that Jesus is the true Israel. He's, gets, he goes into Egypt, he comes back out of Egypt. All right, all of this is to fulfill uh, scripture. Then Herod's slaughter of the babies, yet again, to fulfill Scripture, right? That Jeremiah 31, Je- Rachel weeping for her children, all right? Do y'all see kind of the, the thing here? Matthew's going to hit you over the head over and over again, all right? What you expected is here. You just misunderstood. You had the wrong expectations. You had the Scriptures, you had the prophecies, you had everything you needed, but you missed it, all right? He is here, um, then yet again, Matthew 2, 25, he came and lived in Nazareth, which was fulfilled and was spoken through the prophets. He will be a Nazarene. So Matthew's pointing to another fulfillment of prophecy. Uh, specifically, the root in Hebrew means branch, both Nazarene and Nazareth. A branch of David will come up. All right. So he's pointing to that expectation. Uh, Then you get the announcement of the king by John the Baptist. The kingdom is at hand. Uh, John the Baptist starts his ministry in Matthew 3. And notice his call, his summary of his ministry is Matthew 3, 2. Repent, for the kingdom is at hand. Not the kingdom you expected, not the earthly kingdom that's to come in the end with the final judgment in the millennial kingdom. No, The king is here, and the kingdom is in us. His people are being pulled back to God. Uh, Matthew 3, 3, you have another fulfillment of prophecy. Um, Then you get John's baptism compared to Christ later on uh, in Matthew 3, 11 through 12. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, And I'm not fit to hold his sandals. The king is coming. The kingdom is at hand. Pay attention. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Right? Y'all remember back in the Old Testament that prophecy that there will be a time when the Spirit will be poured out? And so John is saying, here he is. Right? The one whose death will be pay for your sins, and he can pour out and baptize you in the Holy Spirit and fire. His wintering forward is like his hand, and so you guys see the judgment, which only God has the power to do. And so John's saying, here's another unmet expectation. He's not just from the line of David. He's God. He's God incarnate, and he's here to bring freedom to the captives, right? To bring freedom from sin, to defeat Satan's power over us. Uh, then Matthew three thirteen through 17, you have the baptism of the king. 
Jesus is baptized by John. So you see the completion, the movement from the prophets, the last of the prophet. Now here's the king taken over. Um, and yet again, we get a picture of the Trinity, that he is God, the Son, the Father, the Holy Spirit descending. He's not just a mere man. He's God incarnate. That's then followed up with the temptation of the king, uh, Matthew 4, 1 through 11. He goes in the desert for 40 days. Yet again, I know this is covering it quickly, but we want to give you kind of a running start of where the Sermon on the Mount fits in all of this. Uh, he's tempted for 40 days, just like Israel was tempted for 40 years, right? He's, he's completing that. And notice the last temptation. It's interesting how Matthew arranges them. He puts power as the last one. Why do you think he does that? What did the Jews expect? They wanted a king to come in power, right? To destroy all the enemies, to take over all the world. And so Matthew puts it last. This is what you're expecting. What is Jesus going to say? And what does he say to Satan there? No, right? That's not why I'm here. Um, and so you see this irony that the king is here, the kingdom is at hand, and Satan's trying to buy him off, right, with these different kingdoms. This then leads to the beginning of the ministry. This is where um, Jordan read this morning, kind of our text for today, if there is a text. Yet again, we did all of the Old Testament in the first four chapters of Matthew, so it was hard. For, I didn't want to make him read the whole thing. Uh, but the last little section, John is arrested, Jesus withdraws to Galilee, and yet again, Another fulfillment passage, right? Fulfillment of Isaiah 9 uh, in Matthew 4, 12 through 17, um, which Jordan read to you, that out of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of the Gentiles. Did y'all catch that? Is this just for the Jewish people? There's an international focus already. In Jesus's ministry, okay? We saw that with the Magi. We see that again in Galilee, um, that the Messiah is here, and he brings salvation for all who believe, not just the Jew. Um, and then we see uh, Jesus's key phrase, which is the same key phrase as John the Baptist. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom is here. What you long for, what you hoped for, what you expected is here. Not in the way you thought, but in the way that is right, the way that God planned, the way he works. Um, and so he states this statement. His ministry starts. He starts pulling out his disciples. And then we get this short summary statement that leads directly into the Sermon on the Mount. So I'm going to read Matthew 4, 23 through 25. Jesus was going throughout all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming what? The gospel of the kingdom. This is why this is our theme for the Sermon on the Mount. What is the good news? The king is here. Why is he here? For the forgiveness of sins. It's not to inaugurate some massive army, not to destroy all of everything, right? It's to defeat Satan and free his people from sin. Proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every type of sickness among the people. That's random. Why is that pointed out by Matthew? Well, 
that completes the prophecy, right? That there's a new creation, that things that were destroyed have now been renewed. And so the prophecies, the miracles that Jesus does show his power and show that he is the expected one. So in answer to John, are you the expected one? Yes. All right. Um, the news spread, and then you have large crowds start to gather. And of course, that large crowd will then lead him into the Sermon of the Mount. So people hear uh, his message, repent and believe, for the kingdom is at hand. People come to listen, they see the miracles, and now he's got their attention, starting in Matthew 5 through 7. What do we mean by life in the kingdom? What does that look like? Okay, so is everybody with me so far? So that's the kingdom, the already not yet. Christ inaugurates it, his death and resurrection. We have a new heart, a new spirit. The Holy Spirit's poured out, all of those things. Then there is that future expectation we see in Revelation. And we live in this middle part. What does it look like to live life in the kingdom between the already not yet? Is there still evil out there? Are we still oppressed? Is there still persecution? Are there still, you know, bad people doing bad things? Yes. So what does it mean to be a citizen of the kingdom now looking forward to his second coming? And if you read through the Sermon on the Mount, you see that's what Jesus is talking about. What is life like? What does it mean to live in the kingdom? The Sermon on the Mount gives us guideposts. It gives us direction. It shows us what we should do and what life should be like in this already not yet position. Okay, so uh, let's go back to the chart. Um, the Jewish expectation chart, and we'll add some corrections here. So point one, the Lord will reign over the earth and the son of David will serve as king. Yes, they were right about that. But we got to do it already, not yet. Okay, so the Lord reigns in the heart of his people and later he will reign on earth. God already has control of us, right? We are a part of his body. Um, that's the already. There is a hope for the future, but there's that unknown expectation that the Jewish people got a little wrong. Uh, number two, the son of David has come and will establish a kingdom in Israel in the future. All right, so that's the correction that we see in Matthew. Let's go to our second point. The exile will be over and the new covenant fulfilled, okay? Well, Christ has freed his people from sin, and then in the future... He will destroy evil. He'll bring everybody back. There'll be the millennial reign. There'll be a kingdom where we're all brought back together, okay? So free the exile, freed from sin, now coming back. Then the new covenant is here and will be uh, consummated at the end. There's a new heart, a new people, uh, a new spirit. All of those things have happened that we will see finally in the end in Revelation, the, the fulfillment. Okay, point three, God's people will keep his law and there will be a new creation. That's right, but here's the explanation. The Holy Spirit empowers his people to follow God and in the end, all will acknowledge his rule. Now we do, the church, the body of Christ, but in the future, everybody will, right? The not yet. Um, Christians are new creation, that's the already. And in the future, there'll be a new heaven and a new earth. Already, not yet. Last point, the Holy Spirit will be poured out. The promise to Abraham, all nations will be blessed, will become a reality. 
um, the Holy Spirit has been poured out on his people. And we preach the gospel to the nations now. And at the end, every tongue will confess Jesus is Lord. So what does it look like to live between these two? What does it look like? How do we go about our daily lives? Hoping for the future and in reality of what has come, okay? How does that look? What does that look like? And that's what we'll talk about over the next 11 weeks. How do we live life in that, All right? Okay, so next week, um, Mike hopefully will be back from COVID. Uh, we're gonna talk about the Beatitudes and how that's an indication of what life looks like, the blessed ones in the kingdom here now, looking forward to the already, not yet. And then we'll move on from there. So um, my challenge to you guys in preparation for next week, go ahead and read through Matthew 5 through 7. So you, with this mindset of the kingdom, all right, how do I live in the kingdom as citizens of the kingdom? And then next week, we'll kick it off and start walking through this and answer it together as we look at Matthew 5 through 7. Amen? All right, let me pray for us, and then we'll call the guys back up to give our final song. Uh, Lord, we just thank you for the beauty of your word and the unified narrative that we have, that the Old Testament from the beginning to end is pointing to Christ as the ultimate fulfillment of all of the prophecies, Lord. And we, we thank you that your, your ways are wiser than ours. That we might want to focus on the physical. We might want you to fix circumstances. We might want you to fix this earth or our country or people, whatever. You know what we really need, and that's a new heart, a new spirit, the Holy Spirit, forgiveness for sins. And so, Lord, I just thank you for the sending of your son, for his dying on the cross, so that we might become citizens of the kingdom. We might become part of the body of Christ. And Lord, I just pray that as we go out, that we live life like that, that we are harbingers of the kingdom. We are ambassadors of Christ. And as such, we are called to a certain way of living. And Lord, I just thank you for everyone here and pray that you're with us as we go through this next week. In your name, amen.